Awesome. So great. Let's take a moment to pause. Just kind of let what Andrea said settle in. I love that last challenge. So much of short-term missions is just about letting God at you long enough to give you new eyes to see the opportunities to love all around you, the opportunities to care, the opportunities to listen. God, we're here before you. We're open before you. We're open before your word. Do the heart surgery that you need to do on us this morning. We love you, but um, we know that you love us enough that you don't want to just keep us where we are. You want to grow us up and to mature us. Um, Do whatever you need to do this morning to help make that happen, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Not every Christian tradition does it. It's not necessarily right or wrong, but this morning I'd like us to uh, stand during the gospel reading. Why don't we stand up? I'm going to read from Mark chapter 12. Standing was sometimes a way for different Christian traditions to say, we're about to hear from the word of God, so we stand. We can sit during the sermon because the sermon's essentially just commentary. God's word commands our ultimate respect. We sit for the rest of it. Everything else is commentary. So I'm going to be be reading from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. You can be seated. I'm going to tell you guys what has become a defining story for Heather and I. It's a story of our, uh, it takes place on our honeymoon. Blair and Noreen are enjoying their honeymoon right now. I hope our story is in no way connected to their experience of their honeymoon because this is a sad, tragic, like one of those stories you laugh at, but you laugh and cry, but you mostly laugh because you're just glad that didn't happen to you. Okay, here's what happens. We are two days into our honeymoon. This This is day number two. And we were staying at a ski resort in Collingwood off-season. Uh, it was May Long weekend. Uh, we'll be celebrating our 15th anniversary this Wednesday. So 15 years ago, way, way, way back in the day, um, we were staying here. And it was the middle of the night. It was about 2.30, quarter to 3 in the morning. And I woke up first. I woke up. There was this huge bang upstairs. Just bang! Like loud. Not like a door slamming, like something smashing and breaking. And you know when you wake up and you're not sure if it was your dream or if you actually heard something, so I'm kind of just frozen in bed, right? You're like, bang! Again, same thing. It's like, what's going on? I wake Heather up. She's like, what's going on? I'm like, I have no idea. We're totally scared. Now, there was a cluster of ski chalets. We were on the lower level. There was, we knew there was one above us because it was kind of like two levels and they were all kind of, maybe 16 of them kind of clustered together in different parking lots. We also knew that 
there weren't many people staying because we had arrived after the long weekend. We'd only seen like six other people on the site. So as we're sitting there in bed and trying to figure out what's going on, we heard glass shatter, smash. So my first thought is like, um, maybe it's like a bear. Because <laughs> I was from the city and I didn't know anything about wildlife. And we were like way out in Collingwood, which is like a little bit north of the city. So I was like, I was like, this sounds terrifying. Is there like a wild animal upstairs? Is there a bear? And I was like, I don't think there's bears around here. And I'm like, you, you go check. So I, <laughs> I kind of sent her towards the, the window and she was going towards uh, the French doors and the, and the curtains were drawn. And then we heard like another bang, like something really heavy had slammed down on the floor. No voices or anything, just these repeated loud noises. She comes back, she's like, this is not a bear. I don't know what's going on. And then we thought like some kind of vandalism, burglary, but this, I mean, it's groggy, it's in the middle of the night, you're tired, what is going on? So Heather's like, you should phone the front desk. So I phoned the front desk, and I said, uh, hello, uh, my name is Jeff, we're in this chalet, and I'm not sure exactly what's happening, but I think there might be uh, like some people upstairs vandalizing the place. It sounds really, really bad. I think you should check it out. Thank you very much, sir. We'll be right over. Hang up the phone, sitting there, bang, again. 20 seconds goes by, his phone, phone rings. I pick up the phone. Hello? He's like, sir, there is a fire above you. You need to get out of that chalet as soon as you possibly can. <laughs> so I put down the phone. The rest of it's a little bit of a blur. But I remember I said to Heather, I said, the place is on fire upstairs. And so we're like, holy moly, what, what do we grab? We had brought almost all of our worldly possessions, bikes, clothes. It was a weird time of year in Ontario, so you didn't know if you needed like warm clothes or summer clothes and what we were going to do. So we had so much of our stuff there, but we knew we had to get out. So we were trying to think through, okay, really quickly, what is the essential stuff? What's the most important thing? So we remembered that we had, uh, I don't know why we brought it, but we had brought, um, we had an envelope with all the money people had given us for a wedding. So we grabbed that. <laughs> Definitely going to need that. Grab, like, I think a duffel bag and some medication. And we uh, got dressed and went out the door. And I remember, I'll never forget it for as long as I live, because we went out the door and there was an awning, so you couldn't see up. And my wife went out first, and she ran up, and she turned around, and she said something that I cannot repeat in church. And then she kept running, and I was like, what's going on? So I ran, and I looked up, and it's like Backdraft. Do you remember that movie, Backdraft? Like, you know when you think fire's like smoke? This is like fire billowing out the windows and half the roof was on fire. And there was like um, asphalt ash like pluming in the air. And I saw our little gray Saturn that was parked kind of fairly close to it. And it was just like covered with ash. It was like on fire. So we like sprint to the car. We get in the car, we drive. And, um, and from that point on, it was just kind of a blur. You know, you had the fire department eventually show up. It was a huge issue. To this day, they don't really know what happened. They thought maybe after the long weekend, someone left a cigarette somewhere on the couch and it lit up or whatever. And then you had to do that awkward thing where you had to sit down with the police and go through the whole story. And they think it's funny, right? Like they're like, oh, it's pretty hot honeymoon, right? And you're like, I'm just cold and tired and I've just lost everything I've owned. So maybe we could just do this. And then we just drove back to Niagara Falls and spent the rest of our honeymoon with Heather's parents. Womp, womp. Oh. Memories. Oh. 
So hopefully Blair and Noreen are avoiding anything of that kind of catastrophic neighbor, uh, nature. But I thought of that story this week as I was prepping for the sermon because the question that this teacher of the law, the scribe, asks Jesus is kind of moving in that direction. That in this moment of crisis, um, in these places where you don't have time to think, you've just got to grab something and grab what's most important What's the most important thing to grab onto? What's the most important thing to build your life around? If your life was essentially um, under threat of, of losing everything, what would be the one thing that you should grab that would set the foundation and, and allow you to kind of restart and rebuild your life? So faced with the whole kind of spectrum of Jewish law that God gave to, God's, uh, to his people, What's the commandment that really mattered? What should you grasp in that moment to build your identity on to restart your life? Teachers of the law would often debate and discuss this. Remember, these are scribes. These are people who know what we would think of as the Old Testament inside out and backwards. They knew their stuff. And they would often have debates. What's the greatest commandment? What's, is there a command upon which the 613 kind of total commands that are in the Torah are, are built upon? And what they would do is one of the ways you would test a, a, a rabbi or a religious teacher or a fellow scribe, not as a w- way to be a, a jerk or to be mean, but just to kind of see what they're made of and kind of where they're coming from, is you'd ask them, like, what do you think is the greatest commandment? That was like a shortcut way of trying to figure out where people stood on a lot of issues. So Jesus says this. He says, the most important one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment that is greater than that. So Jesus' answer, what in Christian circles has become known as the great commandment, kind of has three dimensions that are very, very important for us to think through. The first is that love is God's bottom line. Love is the ultimate ground and foundation out of which everything about the law, about what it means to live for God, what it means to follow God, it has to all be put through that lens. Jesus cuts through all this potential complexity of trying to categorize all these different laws, and he says they're all good, but they all come down to love, love of God and love of our neighbor. He pulls Deuteronomy 6.5, which is love God, heart, soul, strength, and Leviticus 19.18, where God commands Israel, you have to pursue justice because you're called to love your neighbor as yourself. And he pulls those together and he says, that is, that's the foundation. That is the most important thing that you need to build your life around. Number two, he says that he, the way he teaches it shows that the horizontal and the vertical loves are inseparable. Notice that the, it's kind of this one command, but there's two sides to this coin. And Jesus talks about this first and second command, but kind of conflates them as a way of saying, you can't actually keep this one commandment unless you keep both sides of it. So there's this vertical dimension where you, a super important thing is to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you've also, think the cross, the horizontal, you've also got to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that command, that intersection where you're doing both well is what's most important. And, um, and, and what he's saying there is you, you can't actually obey the command. You can't, you can't fulfill it. It can't be real in your life if you're like, well, I just worry about my relationship with God. God can, God can love and take care of other people. I'll just focus on God. Mm, no, that's, no. Or 
yeah, I'm sure there's a God, but whatever. Like, but I, I just really want to live a good life where I care for other people and love other people. Both of those are incomplete. They don't hold the command together. The most important thing, Jesus says, is to hold these loves together in a dynamic and creative and beautiful way. And Jesus says, number three, that love actually has a priority. It's not um, love your neighbor as you, uh, you know, as you would yourself, and if you have time, you can like, love God too. You can kind of throw him a bone and give him the crumbs from your table, table and that'd be good. Uh, Jesus says, no, you hold those loves in tension, but they have a priority. You love God first above any other human commitment, any other human priority. God takes precedent, and out of that love, as God is teaching you and molding you by his love, then you're going to be able to give a genuinely transformative love to the people around you. You won't op- be operating out of your, what we tend to default to, self, self-absorbed, uh, all love other people the way I think they should be loved. You will begin to love people out of the way God loves you, his transforming love. And this is also there to remind people that your highest commitment isn't to love and care for other people. That's a good thing. That always has to be, there's like an A and a B part to this command, and the A part always has to be there. You have to put God first. God has to be central to everything you do. It's, uh, that's the first commandment, Exodus 23, right? I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord. I am the ultimate priority. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who brought you out of the place of enslavement and death and destruction. When you had no future, no other human being did that. I did that. I brought you out. So therefore, don't have any other gods before me. Don't place before me, above me, um, person, an idea, or a value that is not me. Because I am the one who's given you your life. You owe your life to me. So love has a priority. Now, when you look at this, if you've been in church for more than two or three years, likely, you're probably familiar with this great commandment. Almost every church talks about it. It's in almost every church's mission statement, every denomination. Um, every Christian knows this. And I haven't met too many people who, when I said, hey, as we've talked about this, or if they've asked me questions, they've kind of said, oh, I'm actually not interested in pursuing this. Everyone kind of knows this is the bottom line, and they want to pursue it. But for me, one of the questions that has haunted me for a huge part of my life is, how do I actually do that, though? It's one thing to say, love God with every part of who you are, love your, love your neighbors yourself. Totally, I'm with you. I want to do it. And, and w- what I received when I became a Christian for probably the first five or ten years was kind of like, good, then go, do it. Go out there. And you're like, yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not resisting. I totally want to. I just don't really know what shape is that supposed to look like in my job as a dental assistant? What does it mean to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength when I'm ready to pull my hair out because my kids are going crazy? Uh, what does this look like in terms of what I do and how I structure a family budget? And it was almost like, uh, I don't know if you guys had this experience where you'd go to like a youth retreat or maybe just a conference of some kind and you get so pumped up, you want to live for God. You're like, absolutely, I totally want to do this. Monday's going to be new day, new start. <clears throat> I'm ready. And then by like Monday afternoon, you're like, what happened? Like, <laughs> I feel like the wheels fell off. Like, I don't really, and then you feel guilty or you feel dumb or you're like, is there something wrong with me or is something wrong with God or what's going on? See, no one really gave me a strategy or a plan or any kind of a framework for what it meant to 
try and live out this command when I became a Christian. For the first five years of my life, I became a Christian at 14 in grade nine, no Christian upbringing to speak of whatsoever. My first five years were kind of just grabbing stuff from all over. It's kind of like fortune cookie Christianity. I would just grab a little thing here, grab a thing here. I'd go over to people's friends whose parents were Christian that had stuff on their fridge, read the magnet. That's a good one, I'll, I'll store that away. And it was just kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm just trying to hold it all together and honor God as best I could. But that gets exhausting after a while. And then you kind of try and figure out a way to simplify it. You're kind of like, okay, I kind of see a basic pattern. Got to read the Bible, got to pray, got to go to church, and then go to youth group or like some other thing or small group. So I started doing that um, and hoping that if I just kind of did those things, growth would happen that I would experience this transformation in Christ that, that people talk about, that I wanted, that I had experienced, but I wanted more of it. I wanted to continue to grow. But again, I, with every year that went by, I'd have this increasing frustration as I came home from those retreats or as I'd hear about other people's experiences of growing in God, and I'd say, I feel like that's it's not quite happening in my life the way that I thought it would or expected it to. Um, and no one was really guiding and shepherding me. I was a part of a church that loved me. It was a small little Anglican community. But they didn't have much of a plan either. They were godly, uh, good people. But if I were to say to them, how do I grow as a Christian? They'd kind of be like, well, come to church and pray and read your Bible and it'll, it'll work out. I mean, that was kind of the, their capacity. In my 20s, I was exposed to an author that flipped my life right side up. His name is Dallas Willard. He passed away a few years ago from cancer, unfortunately, but he was a professor of philosophy at uh, University of Southern California, I think, but a prolific Christian author. And he always used this word discipleship. He was always talking about disciple, discipleship, discipling. And I hadn't really, I'd heard a little bit of smattering of that word before, but it never really kind of taken root in my life. And he said, a disciple is someone who is seriously and intentionally trying to structure their life around what Jesus said is most important. Love God, every part of who you are, love your neighbors yourself. A disciple isn't someone who's just thinking about that on Sunday morning in a certain window. It's someone who is saying, if that, if Jesus is my Lord, and if that's my life, what would it look like to live my whole life, Monday through Sunday, around that command? And they were just pursuing that and uh, hungering to know more about that. Uh, when I was reading those things, that was a flip in my mind because I always thought the word disciple meant like super Christian. Like they were like regular people. And then they were like disciples, right? They were like the Jesus keeners, like the people you had in your class or when they got a 90, they were like, oh, I got a low mark. So they always wanted like the super A plus scores. And you're like, oh my goodness, what a keener. I thought disciple was, that's what it was. It was like that next level that if you were like super, super into Jesus and the kingdom stuff, you can go for it. But like, I didn't see myself, I didn't see it as a calling on my own life. And, and Dallas Willard said, no, being a disciple is just someone who's taking seriously wherever they're at, whatever stage of maturity they're at, they're interested in doing the next right thing. They're interested in taking the next step of discipleship. It might be a very small step, but they're serious about it. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a healthy obsession. And so a 10-year-old can be a disciple, an 80-year-old can be a disciple. It's not about how super spiritual you are. It's about how focused and intentional you are. And then I came across this quote in one of the last books he wrote before he passed away. He said, The greatest issue facing the world today, 
with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians, whether or not they will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Dallas Willard said, I think there are too many Christians who are following Jesus, but they're following from a massive distance. Jesus is out in front. I'm totally following. I'm just kind of going at my own pace. And like, I, I'm setting the pace for my spiritual walk with Christ. And he says, a disciple is someone who says, I'm following Jesus, but I'm trying to follow closely. I'm trying to track with him. And I might not know a lot of stuff. I might not know where to find certain books in the Bible. I might, not, I might still struggle and be awkward in my prayer life. I might be still wrestling with unforgiveness in certain relationships in my life. But I'm trying to stay as close as I can to Jesus because I want who he is to become who I am. I see things in him. I want to become like Christ. I want to put on Christ. I want to clothe myself with Christ. There's lots of people that I could allow in this world, lots of voices to be the ultimate authority in my life, but I want his voice in my ear louder than anyone else's. And it was Willard's writing, these kinds of thoughts about discipleship, that kind of set my heart on fire in my early 20s. And like that first fire for Heather and I at our honeymoon that consumed almost all of my worldly possessions, this new fire of discipleship began to kind of burn away all the secondary uh, just less important uh, layers and issues to my life. And, and, what, and, and the, one or two th- you know, the one thing that I increasingly wanted to grab and bring into the future was I want to learn to love God fully and love my neighbor the way Jesus showed us how to do that. I want that for my life. I'm really serious about pursuing that for me. I'm going to share in the coming weeks the different hills and valleys and victories and defeats and false starts that I experienced on that journey. But for now, I want to share what I've learned uh, over a decade as a pastor and over uh, almost two decades now of taking discipleship seriously to Jesus. I want to just share a few thoughts of what I've learned for those of us in this room who would say, yeah, this vision for discipleship, maybe it's new to you, but like, there's something here. This is interesting. I want to know more about it. The first thing that I came to realize, well, not the first thing, that's one of the last things I've only come to realize in the last few years is if you want to intentionally grow as a disciple, you need a plan. You need to have handles to, to grab onto. It can't just be come to church, go to a Bible study, God bless, go on your way, we'll see what happens. You have to have some kind of a plan. When Paul is training Timothy to be a pastor to a community, but first to be a disciple, he says you're going to have to train yourself to be godly. Godliness Growing in righteousness, pursuing God is something that you're going to have to train for. It takes effort. It's not something that just kind of passively happens to you while you're busy living your life. You have to be living into it. Like an athlete training for an event, disciples of Jesus understand that they're involved in a process where heart, soul, mind, and strength, they're learning to take little steps every day in different ways to better understand and love God and better understand and love their neighbor. Uh, recently, uh, Stephanie Kirk, where's the picture? There we go. Uh, competed in a Spartan race. I don't know. These have kind of exploded over North America. Um, these are like pretty intense races that go beyond just like a 10K format. They involve all kinds of really challenging obstacles. There's like uh, barbed wire. There's uh, 
electrical things. It's, 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 it's really quite crazy. She, she posted a picture on Facebook where it said um, there's this huge warning at the start of the race where it's kind of like, you know, there is a probability that you will die or suffer catastrophic injury, so you assume all liability and risk. So I asked her, I was like, hey, didn't you just run that race? She's like, oh, yeah, like, are you planning to do it next year? I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm just using you as a sermon illustration. I would never do this. I got four kids. I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't absorb a catastrophic injury. Um, but she did this, and I asked her, I said, how did you prepare for that? How did you train for that race? And she said this. She said, since about February, I did lots of hiking, and I did the Couch to 5K program, which is a running program that assumes you are in no fitness level whatsoever to run. So you go from the couch to running 5K within a, a kind of a structured amount of time. And she began doing that kind of run-walk program four times a week. She said, I was already into some strength training about four times a week. So she just began to build on areas that were weak, mostly upper body strength. She said, the best exercises I did were pull-ups, Spider-Man lunges, Hercules pull-downs, running up hills with weights, uh, and <laughs> plyometric exercises. That is someone who understands, if I'm going to compete in this race, if I'm going to finish in this race, I can't just show up to the race the day of and kind of hope that I'm ready. <laughs> and discipleship kind of is the same way. Paul says, you are in a race. And hopefully, the Christian life isn't always as grueling as moving through a Spartan race, but it is something that you have to prepare for. Paul is bracing Timothy. He says, Timothy, I want you to understand what you're getting into. You, you're you're going to have to train for this. You're going to have to have a plan. This is going to, just like an athlete preparing for an event, you're going to have to learn to eat a certain way, uh, run a certain way, do exercises and stretches that maybe you've never had to do before. And the first little bit, it's going to be sore. It's going to be awkward because you're like, I am not used to using these muscles. I just ran uphill the other day, like uphill, uphill, like I ran uphill to uphill. <laughs> that was a terrible mistake. <laughs> I was like, it doesn't look that steep. And then it just kind of keeps going like this. And, uh, and I was like, oh, that is intense. And then you get like the DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. We're like, after the exercise, you're like, that's not too bad. And the next day you wake up and you're like, okay, I feel a little bit. And then the 48 hours kicks in and you're like going around in a wheelchair. You're like, oh my goodness, I can't even feel my legs. And Paul's saying, Timothy, sometimes growth as, as a disciple is going to feel like that. You're going to have to push through. You're going to have to pursue this. This is something you've got to fight for. This isn't something that just passively happens. You've got to go into training. But I also learned that whatever plan I came up with for discipleship had to have a few features to it. It had to be simple. I don't have time for a lot of complexity in my life. I got a family of six. I have uh, a job that is really demanding and draining. I can't have some kind of 20-dimension discipleship plan with layers and complex. I'm going to give up on it. It has to be simple. It has to be something that's intuitive where when I hear it, I get it, and I'm like, got it. I don't need to go to school for two years to understand it. I don't need to know everything there is to know about theology or the Bible. It's just accessible. It needs to be a plan that's biblical, not rooted in uh, what does Jeff think a disciple is or what does Dallas Willard think a disciple is, but what does the Bible say a disciple is? So it has to, be up, has to come out of the groundwork of Scripture. It needs to be something that's contextual. Pursuing discipleship, learning to make Jesus' great commandment the center point of your life, that looks very different when you are a new mom 
than when you are newly retired. And what discipleship to Jesus looks like when you're in junior high is different than what it looks like when you're in college or university or when you move into your first job. So I began to realize if I was going to help myself and other people grow as disciples, I needed to help them come up with a plan that was customizable for where they're at. Because there's no one size fits all when it comes to following Jesus. It needs to be a plan that's challenging. Where when we're doing it, we're not bored and just kind of like going through the motions. I'm showing up to church. I'm reading my Bible, yada, yada, yada. It's something that you think, this is exciting. This is what I want to focus on this week. Here we go. And it's something that's effective. I needed to come up with a plan and a way of pursuing Jesus' great commandment that actually worked. It wasn't successful. If If I do this plan and a year later I'm like, I've done all this stuff, but I don't actually feel stronger in my faith. I don't feel a greater intimacy with Jesus. I don't really feel like there's much fruitfulness in my life. It just seems like I've just ramped up a lot of religious activity. So it needs to be genuinely formative into the way of Jesus. So what I want to be doing over these next uh, four to five weeks is kind of walking us through this plan. And this is kind of the the two pillars of it. How many people here are familiar with the language of love languages and just in relationships in general? Okay, so it's, it's really important to know, just generally speaking in any relationship, really critical in marriages, but it's the idea that we, within every relationship, each of us give and receive love in different ways. So a key to good relationships is I learn how to love my wife, not, as, um, not in the ways that speak of love to me, but in the ways that speak of love to her. She has a certain love language, so I need to love her in ways that really communicate love for her, right? If I come home and say, I bought you a gift, and she's like, well, it's really thoughtful, and she opens it up, and she, it's a video game. And she's like, well, I'm not gonna play it. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine, I'll play it then, right? <laughs> that's not loving. Right? That's not me really learning her love language and blessing her on her terms. And because of my undergrad in psychology, uh, I just picked up on this language really quick. But then I noticed something as I talked to Christians over a number of years and, and pastored people and pastored youth. I thought, I think there's a lot of people, well, what's true in our relationships with other people, I kind of, it sounded to me like it was true in people's relationship with God. That in the same way that there were different spiritual love languages that people had, as I began to listen to people's stories, I thought, people clearly experience God in very different ways, and they seem to connect and encounter God and grow in him, sometimes in ways that are very distinct from each other. And so I took that idea of spiritual love languages, I kind of fused it with the great commandment, love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and came up with this discipleship model that says, there's, broadly speaking, probably four types of Christians. That when we become a Christian, there's kind of one principal way through which we tend to connect with God. So over the coming weeks, we're going to learn about heart types who experience God primarily, not only, but primarily through connection and through community. We're going to learn about soul types who are people who primarily experience God and are transformed in their relationship with God through times of stillness, quiet, reflection, personal prayer, private worship. Uh, We're going to learn about mind types. This is my type who experience God and growth primarily through scripture by understanding scripture, theology, discussing it, memorizing it. And lastly, my strength types. 
whose experience of God and whose growth in God is very much tied to practically getting out there and exercising physically um, their gifts to love and bless people in the world. And so my plan is, starting next week with the heart type, we're going to go through each of these types. And in the process, you're going to discover your spiritual love language. You're going to kind of say, oh, that explains a lot about my journey. And it explains a lot about why I value the things that I value, because maybe I'm a soul type, and that has these ramifications, or that's a heart type, and that has these ramifications. But coming out of that, five weeks from now, I want us to also be able to put together a customized spiritual growth plan. Because the great commandment is not love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, or with all your strength. You pick whatever works for you. That is not the great commandment. The great commandment is Jesus saying, with every fiber of your being, and I think what we're going to learn in the process is a lot of our Christian growth tends to be in areas that come naturally to us, our spiritual love language. And that's a good thing. But to experience transformation in Christ, to become a disciple means I need to learn and grow, to grow in areas that are not easy for me. They demand me exercising muscles that I would just even prefer not to use. I'm glad that other Christians use them, but it's not really for me. So I want us to come up with a simple, effective biblical plan that helps us to grow in all of these dimensions. Because we want a relationship with God that's informed by all of those dimensions. If you came over to my wife and I's house and we were having dinner and we were talking about a relationship and you were kind of like, so, um, you know, and in the midst of talking, it was very obvious that we loved, like my wife and I loved to discuss issues and debate things and to kind of go into theology and philosophy. And at the table, 20 minutes later, after talking about all this stuff, you're kind of trying to change the subjects. It's kind of like, okay, I get it. You're like, oh, crazy mind types, whatever. Uh, so, like, what do you guys do for fun? Uh, I don't know. We don't really do, like, stuff. We, we talk. Like, we discuss issues. Yeah, but, like, when you guys go on vacation, like, and just have fun, like, let your head on. What do you do? Oh, that's, like, for other people. I don't, I don't do that. Uh, Okay. Uh, like, do you, do you guys like serve together? How do you, no? Like, we talk about it. Like, we'll, we'll go serve and then we come back and we talk about it. Um, what about like, um, you know, maybe it was a premarital counseling thing and they're asking questions about physical or kind of emotional intimacy. Yeah, it's not a part of our relationship. Like, we just talk about ideas. You would not walk away from that dinner and be like, Jeff and Heather, what a paradigm of a healthy marriage. I have so much to learn from them. You're like, Holy smokes, our pastor and his wife are super weird. They have this really odd marriage. It is, this does not seem healthy or normal at all. And the conviction that I came to after so many years of thinking about discipleship is that has been so much of my journey. I will connect to God pre predominantly through my mind. And the other stuff, that's ah, okay. But I don't want to have a one-dimensional relationship with God. I want to have a fully-orbed, transformative relationship with God. And I think that's what God has been putting on my heart these last, um, probably this last decade. And then I want to encourage us over the summer and as we start up small groups in the fall to learn how to connect with each other, to love each other by knowing our love languages and to learn from one another. Because I, I know right now there's going to be a, all different kinds of types in this room and that's such a good thing and we need everyone. 
and we need to encourage each other and also to learn from each other. So that's what we're going to be focusing on over the next five weeks, explaining each type. I'm going to show you how it plays out in Jesus' ministry. Maybe we're going to look at a few case studies of biblical characters of people who maybe were one-dimensional in their relationship with God and kind of what it cost them. There are some stories like that in Scripture where some people said, I'll grow in these areas, God, but not here. And look at the fruit that comes from that. Um, And we're going to explain why each of these types is a gift to the church and why we need to learn from and with each other. And so by the end of the series, we're going to have this plan. We're going to have this easy thing that whether you're in junior high or you've been retired for decades, this is going to be accessible to you. It's not for super Christians. You can be on, you can, you, maybe you even say, I'm just brand new Christian. I don't know anything about anything. That's great. We'll, I, we will help you come up with a plan to grow in your faith. Maybe. That might happen. Because there is this weird little way this, this section ends, right? Jesus sees that the scribe has answered wisely, and he says, you're not far from the kingdom at all. You're really close. Why does he say that? Why does Jesus say the kingdom is coming to your life? You're in. He says you're close. You got it. You understand. That's the most important thing. Love God, love other people. You're close. Any ideas on why he says that? Because you got to do it. That's exactly right. Spiritual growth doesn't come from simply accumulating more information and more knowledge about God. If it did, I would be way more spiritually mature than I actually am because I'm an information junkie. I'm a theology junkie. But God's had to bring that to conviction for me. In a lot of cases, Jeff, you're close to where I want you to be, but now you're going to have to do something with it. A disciple is someone who doesn't just know the right answers. They're trying to knead it into their life, into their bones, into the fabric of their DNA, and living it out all the time. And again, it might be in small ways. It doesn't always mean these big, super spiritual, ecstatic, massive movements. It just means in small little ways, how am I showing God I love him more? How am I showing greater love and compassion to my neighbor? And so here's the warning, that over the next few weeks, I will be pushing us to do things with what we're learning through the week that might be uncomfortable. We're going to come up with like a little, little challenge for each week. And it might be little. And for some of us, if it's your type, you're going to be like, I do that all the time, no problem. But for a lot of us, it's going to be like, oh, I totally, I get the idea of why you would do that. And that's great. Yeah, we're going to do it though. We're actually going to do it together. And you're going to realize how awkward it is to love God outside of your own love language, but how important it is. And so we're going to stretch ourselves in ways that are uncomfortable. And maybe you're going to have a few days like I did where you wake up the next day and you're like, oh, that is, uh, those muscles are sore. Those are a little out of shape. But together we're going to move into this future together because I want to be, I want to be known in the best sense of the word. I want to be known as a disciple of Jesus. I want people in Nelson, in this community, to know that I'm not perfect, but I'm growing and I'm moving towards Jesus seriously and intentionally in my life. And I want that to be what this church is known for. Not programs, not flash, not um, stuff that some other churches see as so important. The foundation is, are we loving God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and are we learning to love our neighbor as ourselves? I want to say yes to that. I hope you do too. So let's just be aware this week and kind of be praying, God, like prepare us for what is to come. I want these next few weeks to be 
enlightening and challenging and powerful. Let's pray. God, for a lot of us, maybe your words to this religious teacher are what we need to hear. You're not far from the kingdom of God. We know a lot of this stuff. It's now taking action on it and putting it all together in a way that is accessible for us, that makes sense, that works for us where we're at, whether um, we feel like we have lots of space and knowledge, space for you and knowledge of you, or whether we feel like the margins in our life are very small, or we don't know the first thing about opening up the Bible or how to pray God. But you've drawn us together to be a family. As a family, we're gonna love each other, we're gonna support each other, and we're gonna help each other pursue you and make you our, our, our ultimate goal and our ultimate aim. We love you, God. Help us over these coming weeks. In Jesus' name, amen.
yeah, you can remain standing. It is all about Jesus. And yeah, God, we, as we go, <clears throat> we don't want discipleship and spiritual growth and this great commandment. We don't want this to just be st- stuff that we know, we get it. Um, through spirit, through your word, would you just embed it into us, heart, soul, mind, and strength? Would you teach us our role to play in that? Because we want to know you, God, fully and completely. We love you. Help us to go into this week with a heart to begin just exploring prayerfully what loving you on every dimension of our life would look like and taking that love into those you've placed in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Just before benediction, just announcements. There are bulletins that uh, are out there full of lots of great stuff, all the kind of pertinent stuff that you need to know of things that are coming up. So please make sure you grab one and take a look at it and watch for a new bulletin coming soon. Ooh, I know, no, I'm just, that, that's your little tease to get you here next week. You're going you're to be tempted to sleep in and be like, today's new bulletin Sunday. Anyways. Okay, let's, um, let me close with a benediction. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Church, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless. Have a great Sunday.